today is February 17th, Thursday, and this is Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's podcast on neuroscience topics. And if you normally tune in to listen to the melodious voice of Salma Karashi, you're just out of luck today because Salma isn't going to be here, and I'm going to be filling in for Salma the best I can. I apologize in advance for the terrible job that I'm going to do. Now, today's uh, speaker and, and guest on the podcast is Joshua Burke. He is an associate professor of neuroscience at, uh, is it neuroscience or psychology, psychology or both? And psychology and neuroscience at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Josh's work on, well, Josh has done a lot of things, but lately his work on the representations of action in the striatum has changed a lot of people's thinking about how that might occur. And uh, Josh, maybe you would start by telling us something about how actions might be represented in the basal ganglia, why we think the basal ganglia does represent actions, and um, or, or if, we, if we are not sure, uh, why we are not sure, and, uh, and where do you think this uh, way of thinking about basal ganglia might be going? Sure. So... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to do introductions around the room. Around the room for voice identification. Michael Ferris. Hello. And Todd Troyer. Hello. And me. I'm Salma Karashi, your host. <laughs> Charlie Wilson. Josh. Oh, well, thank you, Charlie. So, just one sort of slight clarification. I'm not sure that I would say I work directly on representation of actions in basic ganglion. I would say that I try to understand what contributions basic ganglion make to actions behavioral task performance and very nice to it's a it's a very it's a sounds like a subtle distinction but I think it's an important one because when one talks about representations of actions that to many ears that implies that you've sort of decoded how individual neurons are sort of representing information in the structure I don't think uh, that we've made a lot of progress on that front uh, it must be a goal though. sure it's 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 a goal does it not sure it has to be the only goal or even a primary goal. So I think that one can try to, uh, or one can attempt to understand so the computational architecture of the structure without necessarily understanding what specific patterns of information uh, mean within that computational architecture. So why not say what computational architecture is then? Because it's hard for me to picture it as anything other than a means to the end of in- of sure. uh, encoding the information. Sure. Well, supposing you wanted to understand what dopamine, role dopamine was playing within basal ganglion cells. Quite a few people would like to know that. Quite a few people have opinions of various forms. But you could imagine, you know, for example, conclusively determining that dopamine is indeed playing this critical role as a reward prediction error signal, um, and that playing that kind of role within an adaptive decision-making architecture without necessarily being able to decipher what a specific pattern of firing means within, say, stride. And so those are, that's where the nature of the distinction I'm trying to make there. That's interesting. So is that, um, is that what you're doing? Is your, uh, your, uh, so in that case, you could just say, I don't need to know what decision is being made here. And I don't need to know how each of the cell types in the basal ganglia contributes to the decision. All I really need to know is that this is where that decision is being made, and this is what dopamine is doing sure. to that decision-making So, process. of course, you're quite right that I am trying to do more than just understand what dopamine does. Uh-huh. I am trying to understand the contributions that distinct cell types make. But, once again, uh, 
there's this distinction between trying to understand the nature of representations in the structure and understanding how those representations are transformed or modulated by behavioral factors or how they change over time, which may be possible to get insight into without understanding the full specification of what information is and how it's being transformed. Sounds like a, a strategic decision because the one thing is kind of more difficult than the other, so this might be a way to get a handle on it without having to take on the full weight of the problem head on. That's, I think, fair, yes. But some of this is another way possible to view that is that you're a psychologist and not a biologist. Oh, no. Do, do I have to choose? No, you don't have to choose. <laughs> but in, the, in terms of the emphasis of how you frame the, frame the task functionally rather than mechanistically, right? And, and so if you can go in and manipulate the function and understand various correlates with as you change the behavioral paradigm, sure. then you don't have to... Then you can... I guess you can get further away from, well, potentially. Yeah, there's no line, right? I mean, I, I think that I would hope, aspire to be a biologist in the sense that I actually am concerned with biological mechanisms yeah. and not just, you know, for example, we have reasonable evidence at a psychological level that different kinds of representations are present in different parts of the striatum. So that lateral striatum is supposed to be more important for stimulus response habits, other parts are more involved in, you know, action outcome representations. So I'm interested not just in sort of specifying what kinds of representations are present in different striatal subregions, but also how those representations are being achieved and, and transformed, things like that. So I think that's at least slightly in the biology camp. Yeah, I regret previous <laughs> distinction. <laughs> but so the, it seems like the difficult, the difficult word is, is, is representation. Yes. Right? I mean, whether it's functional or whatever, right. information, something. That's absolutely right. So representation means different things to different people. And, you know, the, my first reaction to the word representation, which Charlie mentioned a minute ago, was to think of, you know, a bunch of cells, with some, each with some complex time course of firing rate changes, and then trying to relate that pattern to some pattern like pattern of muscle activity. And I think that that's very challenging. And uh, as we discussed earlier, it's sort of not just a challenge in striatum, it's a challenge everywhere, a challenge in motor cortex. It's, it's just challenging. So on the other hand, as I just alluded to, what a psychologist might mean by representation might mean a different kind of association between different kinds of behavioral events, between a cue and an action, say or between actions and goals. So those are also sometimes referred to as representations. So I guess I, I am interested in both of those kinds of representations. Uh, I hope, I think we have more traction, perhaps, on the psychological level representations. But so I use the important representation sort of on purpose, and, uh, be, and because actions are such an abstract idea. So there's, and I don't have any doubt that the brain works with abstract Ideas uh, with, with abstractions, it has to. And it's wonderful to think that the basal ganglia, for me, having worked on the basal ganglia for a long time, to think that basal ganglia is involved in you know, higher level ab psychological abstractions and representing really abstract things. The, uh, but there's a, a sort of history of using the word representation to, in artificial intelligence, for example, uh, to, to represent how. To, to, to mean how some kind of very abstract thing gets turned into a symbol in the brain. A symbol meaning maybe a collection of cells or a, or a, a pattern across 
that maybe isn't spatial, spatially well-defined, but a pattern across some group of cells that, that are defined by something else. And that, um, and that representations like that are necessary for, for intelligence and for uh, the kinds of intelligent behavior that come from even from rats, for example. Sure. And, and action, the choice of this action selection idea seems to be um, a, a conscious decision by the scientists using the word to mean this very, very abstract thing. Because an action can be anything. In fact, in the basal ganglia, there are neurons that receive their input from the inferior temporal cortex. And in that case, the action means actually the recognition of an object, maybe. Uh, other, in other cases, it might mean a, a movement, or it might mean a goal that's intended. Right. It's the, the word action is about as abstract as, of a word as we ever use in neuroscience. It's about as abstract as the word decision. So this is another, another, another word that gets used a lot in sort of theoretical discussions of basal ganglia. So obviously action selection, in most respects, synonymous with decision-making. So, you know, and as you alluded to, the basal ganglia are handling lots of different kinds of information, not just motor information, but also cognitive and limbic. So you have to make decisions not just about which hand to move, say, you also decision what goals to pursue, you know, what motivational states are most pressing on your behavior right now. Um, so we'd like to believe that there's a, a sort of common architecture within basal ganglia circuitry that allows you to introduce some kind of nonlinearity that moves from sort of welling up representations in various places in cortex to sort of uh, fixing one versus another alternative, whether those alternatives represent discrete actions or cognitive plans or something else. I'll add a little rundown on the architecture of the basal ganglia from that perspective. Sure. So the main input nucleus of the basal ganglia is generally considered to be the striatum. The striatum receives inputs from a very wide range of cortical areas and also and the thalamus, and uh, from the striatum, the striatum also receives these heavy dopamine projections from the midbrain. So one thing that people would like to know very much is how this dopamine projection from the midbrain is modulating processing of all these cortical inputs within striatum. So from striatum, there are two major outflow pathways. One is called the direct pathway, that goes straight to uh, globus pallidus, pars interna, slash substantia nigra, particulata, and thence to thalamus and back to cortex. And the other pathway is with indirect, indirect pathway that goes via globus pallidus pars externa, and then to subthalamic nucleus, and then to GPI. So there's this long-standing idea that there's these two pathways, the direct and indirect pathways, have sort of opposing control over behavioral outcome. So one thing we people like to, people have been working on a lot, we'd like to understand is the roles of the different pathways and other pathways uh, in this rather simplified description of basal ganglia anatomy. So that's sort of the macro circuit level of description. And then, you know, one would like to move within one of these areas, one of these boxes, like a striatum, and then say what kind of information processing, what kind of input-output transformation is being achieved by a structure like striatum and how are different components of stridal circuitry contributing to that information process. So those are the sort of architectural considerations. And just to say one more thing about that, you know, because striatum is receiving all kinds of different inputs from cortical regions that process very different kinds of information, you know, what we'd like to understand is how the striatum is processing information 
in a manner that's somewhat abstracted away from the specific kind of information that's being handled. Right? So is there a common uh, algorithm that's being applied to input data, whether, on, whether that input data reflects sensory and motor information, or cognitive plans, or motivational states? That's what we'd like to know. So what do we know about, about uh, that? I mean, uh, of course, we, uh, it's one thing to just describe the anatomy. The, the striatal output neurons are the spiny neurons, and there's basically two kinds of spiny neurons, and then there's like so many different kinds of inner neurons. Uh, and that's the, that's the thing we're always told about the striatum. But it always uh, has a kind of empty ring to it, because we can't picture how any of those cells are participating in a real, in a real life task. Uh, can you can you tell us sort of how those how are spiny cells how do spiny cells fire in in real life what are the what do we know about what their action potentials mean all right uh, okay where to start with that so I mean one way of trying to divide things up is to try to draw a distinction between s- signals in the basal ganglia that are more scalar in the sense that they're more like a unitary up and down signal and signals that represent more complex patterns of information. So one of the things that has always been thought of as a relatively scalar signal is the dopamine input to the striatum. So one of the leading theories of that is that you know, the degree to which you get sudden increases in dopamine cell input to striatum is encoding a reward prediction error. So if something happens that's better than you expected, you get increased dopamine cell firing. And if it's worse expected, you get a pause in dopamine cell firing. So by treating some of these subpopulations of cells as a unified population, you can get a description that's perhaps easier to manage than considering these richer, more complex patterns of representations across many, many cells, uh, which is probably the case in, in, for the spiny projection cells of strain. So this, that's one signal. The dopamine signal is supposed to be a more scalar signal, although people argue about the degree to which it is. Another signal that's thought to operate in a similar way is the cholinergic interneurons of the striatum that in some way seem to play a complementary and coordinated role with the dopamine cells. They tend to fire pauses in, in spikes when dopamine cells are more active. Um, so that's another signal. And then one thing we've been working on is trying to understand whether, moment, whether other populations that aren't necessarily coordinated all the time can become coordinated at certain moments of behavioral task performance. So uh, We've described how fast spiking interneurons within the striatum seem to become more coordinated in their firing rate increases as animals execute a choice that they've planned. So I think, as you alluded to, one way to try and get a handle on the complexity of firing, cell firing patterns within each of these structures is to see are there moments where cells are behaving as one uh, global population versus acting as sort of very idiosyncratic rich, complex patterns of information that are harder to interpret. That requires recording from more than one of them at a time. Yeah, or maybe one at a time in a very stereotyped task over many uh, sessions. So that would also give you some information. But, uh, you know, what you do, what one would like to get from the ability to record lots of cells at one time is to understand how they become coordinated even within an individual trial of task performance. So how do cells become bound together to something like a cell assembly, a group of cells that maybe has a, serves a common function as a representation in that sense. 
So whether we and lots of other people uh, engage in techniques to try and increase the number of cells we can record at the same time. So, so you entered the basal ganglia field by, well, I mean, you entered the field of basal ganglia neurophysiology anyway by way of the hippocampus. And I wonder if the, well, first you can disagree with that if you want to, but, uh, but uh, secondly, I think, uh, is, is it meaningful? Is it, did the, your work on hippocampus inform your approach to the basal ganglia? It seems to me that it must have because the, well, for one thing, the, the emphasis on oscillatory processes, which is sort of a hippocampal uh, signature, uh, is everywhere in, in your work. Sure. So, just to firstly disagree with you a little bit, so I was previously in my thesis work, I was engaged in molecular biology uh, studies of dopamine impact in strain and on gene expression, and strangely also on functional MRI studies of cocaine on human brain activity. And the results of my molecular biology work were to try to understand, well, what's happened differently in striatum by something like cocaine, where you've caused a big pulse of increased dopamine that we know has lasting effects on behavior? Or conversely, what's happened if you've removed dopamine in the model of Parkinson's disease? How we know that these have these long-lasting changes in behavior, how is this mirrored in changes in gene expression? And the work I did convinced me that a lot of the changes that were most interesting and important weren't persistent changes in gene expression, but they were transient changes that might be associated with synaptic plasticity and that might normally be used uh, under real conditions for situations like learning. So I became interested in addressing the issue of plasticity and change in striatum, and I decided that I didn't want to spend my career uh, looking at one gene after another and its contribution to (coughs) synaptic strength, and I would rather try to look at things like representations, which brings us back to this issue, uh, by recording cells at the same time from different structures. And to sort of get into the hippocampus, so yes, so the lab I was working with, Howard Eichenbaum, was a well-known hippocampus lab. And so we set out to compare hippocampal and striatal activity under conditions where the behavioral literature told us that these two structures were playing distinct roles uh, in learning. So there's this idea that... For example, you know, lateral striatum is involved in stimulus response, habitual behavior, and in just orienting and moving towards cues that signal where a reward is. Whereas hippocampus is more important in setting up, uh, both setting up maps, internal maps of where you are in space, and also remembering where you've been recently. So we did a series of experiments where we're trying to put different behavioral strategies in conflict. So the animal has to choose between using one strategy to guide its behavior and another and try to understand how these two structures that are known to have different representations at the behavioral level might have different representations at the single cell level that correspond to those behaviors and also how such conflicts between different strategies might get resolved when the animal has to ultimately do one thing or the other. Can you give us an example of the different strategies that might be encountered? Sure. So a classic experiment, <coughs> well, a real classic psychology experiment from Tolman uh, 80 years ago or so, was to you first of all place an animal in a uh, cross-shaped maze. And so let's call the four arms of the maze north, south, east, west. 
that supposing you place them in south, you have a rat in south, and you consistently put food in west, then what you observe is the animal quickly learns to run to the center of the maze, make a left turn, and then run over and get the food. All right. So what has the animal learned? Has the animal learned that he's supposed to make a left turn? Or has he learned that the food is in the west location? And you can do a bunch of interesting experiments with manipulating specific brain structures, and you can show that the animal learns both of those things. And that, for example, that the behavior of going to the west location is dominated early in learning by a hippocampus-dependent spatial strategy. That's what they do. But with repeated training, they switch strategies and start going left. And the way that one way you can tell this is you start them in the north arm instead. And then you see, do they make a left turn and end up at east? Or do they go, go as before, to the west location? So it seems like the smarter the, the strategy is learned first and then rejected. Um, well, it depends what you mean by the smarter strategy. So there's no right answer of how to learn to go to the food. They both work. Yeah, but having a cognitive map seems somehow smarter than just knowing. Right. So it may, it may be smarter and also maybe more costly. Right. So one of the sort of recurring themes uh, in the sort of psychological literature here is, well, why do we ever change representations like this? And so just to give an example, if, yeah, I don't know how, mo- how much you guys want to talk about psychology level stuff, but if, you know, imagine you go to a new workplace, and the first time you drive there from home, you have to pay careful attention at each light. Do I turn left here? Do I turn right here? But then eventually, you don't have to pay any attention at all. Right? You can do it automatically while having a conversation with your passenger. So the stra- more automatic strategy is less effortful, less cognitively demanding, and frees you up to do other things. And it's also less flexible. So imagine on a Saturday morning you're meant to go to the dry cleaners, but you find yourself at work because you've just been an automatic pilot. Most people have had these kinds of experiences. In fact, when you map these things out, you find everyone does this about a dozen times a day. Right? So, there's, so there's both advantages and disadvantages to each strategy. And the brain has, has uses different structures um, to work with and capture different elements of our experience for an overall maximally adaptive strategy. And so I, well, one thing that I've always been interested in in is trying to understand how the anatomy and connectivity and other circuit properties of different systems within the brain uh, are used to subserve different behavioral strategies like those. And that's ultimately one of the big things I'm interested in. So that's the sense in which I'm really interested in representations. So what about the question of, this is, so this is an interesting uh, frame on some of the stuff I've been thinking about. So that, why is it that, uh, what about the way you think about the words you use, say action selection or whatever, in the basal ganglia function that should be tied to automaticity. Uh, so why there? I mean, that's just kind of, you know, selecting actions is, doesn't seem like an automatic thing or you have these junction points. Is that is that the, the structure that takes over when you're not paying attention? Or how, how do you think about that? Sure. So, I mean, the way I think about it is as of a sort of hierarchy, behavioral hierarchy so that there are things that we can do with relatively little cognitive involvement and that we do those involving loops through motor and premotor cortex and lateral stridum and so forth. And there are things that we do with more cognitive or emotional involvement that involve different loops through the basal ganglia. So that, again, I don't think, I don't think of automaticity itself as being a key feature of stridal processing. I think that's a sort of feature of one aspect, one subdomain of stridal processing. 
So what, what I would like to have at a computational-level description is something that involves ideas like switching or gating or prioritizing and how those are actually achieved by you know, individual neurons and groups of neurons that can then be used to describe multiple forms of behaviors, including either automatic behaviors or, or cognitive behaviors as well. So this is, uh, this is definitely a biologist's approach, because instead of looking for the, uh, looking for really the overall function, people ask all the time, what's the function of the basal ganglia? Uh, your overall description of function would be at the operational level. You'd be basically uh, writing an equation, saying the basal ganglia does this to its input, right. and then the function of that depends on what the input is, and the input's different all of them, basically, in different things, and so... That's right. I uh, don't know how many equations it would involve. Yes, yeah, right. It might be a very elaborate, complicated equation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or it might be some, you know, some series of sentences in English, which, I, which in some ways I think would be more satisfying, right? So one would like some uh, description that you could tell people without writing down a bunch of equations. So this is what the basic game would do, and then this is how that algorithm is employed for these various different purposes. Yes. And of course we do that with the human-made computational devices. We try both methods. We, we show the manufacturer the equations, but we explain it to the purchaser in, the, in words. Sure. But how about the, some of the other signatures of, of hippocampus? So I, I was thinking, thinking about your work. I was thinking a little bit about this uh, analogy to the hippocampal literature, which I did not know very well. I may very well get wrong. But one of the one of the features of the hippocampus is of the hippocampal literature is an emphasis on representation, on spatial representation. So neurons are a literal representation of some somewhat complicated aspects of navigation in space, but basically boil down to keeping a map. And the uh, a a map at the operational sense of map that can be used in red, not necessarily an abstract map. Right. So this is always, I mean, this is not an uncontroversial issue. Yes. Right. Okay, great. Why don't you say <laughs> something about that? So, all right, so, as you suggested, a lot of what's driven intense interest in hippocampus and single-cell physiology over the last several decades has been the observation by O'Keefe and others that individual cells, especially in areas like CA1 and CA3 in hippocampus, tend to be active in one specific part of an environment. And if you have lots of cells, then you can sort of put together, stitch together a map of this environment together. But of course, the cells don't really behave in a straightforward, mappy way, right? So they depend a lot on the behavioral context of the animal. So for example, if you just have a two-dimensional arena, then place fields, that is the places where a place cell fires, tend to be like spots, blobs within that two-dimensional arena. But if you constrain the animal, even within that two-dimensional arena, to run on certain trajectories within it, then they change. So they start becoming one-dimensional. So they only fire, they fire, for example, when the animal's running one way through the place field and not through the other way through the place field. So they're not abstracted representations of space in a simple way. And, you know, my old boss, Howard Eichenbaum, was involved in a series of arguments about, well, what other properties are more spatial or less spatial. And there's been a very long argument about whether the hippocampus is fundamentally doing a map-like function or fundamentally doing something else, maybe some more abstract function, memory-type function, 
of which the place cells are really just one manifestation. I think one partial resolution to this argument that made a lot of people happy is the discovery of grid cells in entorhinal cortex, which really do seem much more like a, map, a spatial map type function. At least right now they do. I'm sure people will do other studies to show they're not. But then that allowed both sides to declare victory because then one side would say, you see, I told you there was a map in the brain. And the other side could say, you see, it's not quite in the hippocampus. It's one stage over in the entorhinal cortex. So, but... <laughs> but you're right. I mean, the, the sort of places, the spatial nature of place cells has really been uh, fundamental to the success of that field in that it's allowed them something to work with, right? So you can say, here's a, a representation. The cell fires in this one place. What happens if you change the context? What happens? What are the relationships between cells that share nearby place fields? And all kinds of things. It gives you a framework to, to work with. And one challenging thing about stridum, for example, is the lack of an obvious framework like that that, that you can easily work with. Well, one of the uh, really helpful features of the, of the hippocampus for sorting that out was the discovery of the relationship of all those phenomena to the theta rhythm. And uh, it's, there's a promise that similar ways of thinking may be helpful in other parts of the brain, including the Striatum, sure. And do you think that that uh, that we can tra- that we can just take some of those ideas and translate them into striatum and put them to use there too? Sure. Well, yes and no, of course. So, one observation that's interesting is that you know it's not just hippocampal cells that participate in the theta rhythm. So, theta rhythm is found in many parts of the brain, including prefrontal cortex, including ventral parts of striatum, the medial parts of striatum. And so, there's this idea that a theta rhythm could be coordinating activity. Uh, within and between structures, uh, and that there may not be something specific to hippocampus about theta rhythm. And one thing that's also interesting, so I, like you, I tend to think of theta rhythm as being very in- intrinsic to the nature of hippocampal information processing. But, you know, Yuri Bajaki has shown that if you go way ventral to the te- temporal pole of hippocampus, then even though you're in hippocampus, theta rhythm is very weak and cells don't really seem to care about it. So... It may not be that it's fundamental to the way that ah. to the way that hippocampus is organized in the way that I would have liked to think because it made things easier and more interesting to think about. So, but the more general question of you know oscillations, there are certainly plenty of neuroscientists who are extremely skeptical and reasonably so about whether oscillations are telling us anything meaningful about the nature of information processing. Uh, uh, for a bunch of reasons, some of which we can talk about if it's interesting. Uh, I tend to be in the other camp, but I think they're extremely important. And well, tell of, us about the, yeah. the other camp, and we'll get somebody who doesn't sure. believe in them to come and sure. tell us why they're wrong. Uh, well, but we don't need to hear you say that, since you are good at telling us how they're... Yeah, so why do I think they're important? I, mean, I, I think oscillations are important uh, for a few reasons. One reason is I think I'm, I buy into this idea that you can organize sets of projection cells to participate in an assembly, to participate in a representation of information by forcing them to fire near simultaneously. And that the way that you force them to fire simultaneously is by having rhythmic GABAergic inhibition. That if you have sets of cells that you know are getting all kinds of excitatory input, uh, but may otherwise be quite sort of idiosyncratic when they fire spikes, if you impose rhythmic gamma 
gather input on that, then you force them to fire together. And that togetherness can be used for a couple of different purposes, which are, seem quite important. One of which is because they're firing simultaneously, they can together drive a downstream neuron, even if the individual cells aren't firing lots and lots of spikes. And then the other reason is because by forcing cells to fire together, you can do interesting things with synaptic plasticity that would be otherwise much harder to do. So those are the reasons which I find quite compelling for having synchrony. And the way that the brain seems to do synchrony in many brain regions and in many cases is by having rhythmic patterns of inhibition. And we have, seem to have specific cell types that are set up in large measure to do that. So that's why, I mean, those are the functional reasons why I think that oscillations are important. Besides the more sort of cognitive stuff of simply observing interesting patterns of oscillations at specific moments of behavioral times. So you've seen some oscillations in the striatum that you think might be functionally important, but that it's mostly not theta. It's yeah. mostly something else. Well, certainly there is theta in the striatum. And one thing that seems to be distinctive about striatum is that, you know, I, I mentioned that, well, just to back up a second, I said that I wanted a common computational architecture for all of striatum, a unifying theory of basal ganglia that would encompass that. But it is, and I also said that the sort of cellular architecture of a structure like striatum is broad, in broad terms similar throughout the structure. But there are differences of emphasis. So, for example, fast spiking neurons uh, are common in sensory motor parts of striatum, uncommon in limbic parts of striatum. And there seems to be a similar difference in emphasis of which oscillations are present in different parts of striatum. So, limbic parts of striatum tend to have powerful theta rhythms gamma rhythms and oscillations in beta range and high voltage spindle oscillations are more prevalent in sensory motor parts of strain. So what does that mean? You know, does that mean that oscillations can't play a role in my overall desired theory of basic angular architecture? Uh, I'm not sure. It might just be oscillations might in large measure be a reflection of the nature of the information being processed rather than a core property of strain function. So it seems like the key thing there would be whether you can, how much behavioral control you have over a make it come and go, just like any other change in neural activity, right? Right. Um, so you have to, if they're functional, then you should be able to change you, systematically. They have to come and go. If they just come and go willy-nilly, then it's hard to make much sense. Sure. So, then, so of course, you first want to show that they have some relation to behavioral events, and you set up some pattern of correlation, and then you try to manipulate the system in various ways. One of those, some of those manipulations might be pharmacological or more arcane ways of manipulating the system, and you see if the correlations are preserved. But also, as I was describing earlier, just try and slight variations in behavioral tasks and try to see what correlations to oscillatory activity are preserved and what changes with these fairly subtle manipulations in behavior. So that's the approach that we've been taking in the case of beta oscillations over the last couple of years. So, so the idea then is that uh, rhythmic activity in inner neurons ought to be organizing the activity in the striatum. I mean, sure. well, in some way, it may be very complicated and hard to see. So I, have we seen rhythmic activity in inner neurons uh, in the striatum in the same sense that you can see rhythmic activity of inner neurons in the hippocampus? So, okay, so the devil's in the details there. So the broad answer is yes. Uh, I think that the evidence is clearly stronger in hippocampus where you see clearly defined different kinds of interneurons that are active at 
very precisely defined different moments of ostrogenitivity. In the striatum, uh, we definitely see entrainment of specific kinds of interneurons to specific rhythms. Um, it may not be as consistent as it is in hippocampus. And what we haven't seen as clearly is the ability of things like fast-working interneurons in striatum to obviously organize projection self-firing. So I think that's one of the major sort of holes in the story right now is to say, you know, can you establish beyond reasonable doubt that it is the case that a specific group of cells is forcing the projection cells to you know, be coactive by forcing them to participate in a certain rhythm? And I think that we don't have the, enough data on that right now uh, to say that definitively. And the, uh, there are several different kinds of interneurons in the, in the striatum. There are several different kinds of interneurons in the, the campus. In fact, maybe more interneurons in the hippocampus, or maybe we just haven't discovered all the fine That's variations right. in the striatum. And what, um, what, what can we learn about the reason for having more than one kind of interneurons, sure. maybe by looking at other parts of the brain or, sure. or just from a theoretical perspective on oscillations? So there certainly seems to be this broad principle that in many forebrain regions you have bigger diversity of interneuron types than you do at projection sometimes. So I think in the hippocampus, last time I checked, there were up to 25 different kinds of interneurons. And part of this is going to be a, a lumper versus splitter distinction, but nonetheless, they have neurochemical markers and so forth for many different kinds of interneurons. Um, in Australia, we are more like four or five, depending upon whether you include some recent findings from friends of ours or not. Um, so what can we learn? So we do seem to have very specific roles in hippocampus for different kinds of interneurons. So one major distinction is between interneurons that are modulating uh, activity at cell bodies of projection cells versus activity at distal dendrites of projection cells. We see different kinds of interneurons, as I mentioned, are active at different phases of either spontaneously occurring oscillations or following some evoked uh, event like electrical stimulation. You can see particular sequences of interneurons becoming active and then providing feed-forward and feedback in addition to different components of projection cells. So what can we say? Uh, yeah, I think the, the, in broadest terms, we could say that the diversity of interneurons seems to reflect uh, a diversity of different controls that are set up to modulate specific aspects of network dynamics and of plasticity in projection cells. But I don't know if we can directly copy what's been learned from the many kinds of interneurons in hippocampus and, and map it directly onto striatal function, yeah. especially as the projection cells are of a quite different type in striatal compared to hippocampus. But the idea is that in, um, if there's more than one kind of rhythm, all the interneurons would participate in it, but in different phases of it or different aspects of it, or is it that different interneurons are supposed to set up different rhythms depending on their some kind of tuning of their resonance or something right. like that. Right. So in the hippocampus, it's certainly the case. So you get both of those things. So, so <coughs> you both get different interneurons participating at different phases of different rhythms, and you also get different interneurons that seem to be more involved in setting up one kind of rhythm or another kind of rhythm. And perhaps more like the latter in striatum, the initial observations that we and other groups have made recently suggest that you have different subgroups of interneurons that are participating in different rhythms. And so we also see this sort of interesting phenomenon where the oscillatory state 
of the basal ganglia seems to flip or flick between different osteotory bands, both spontaneously and in response to behavioral events like receiving a reward or being given a dopaminergic drug. So we'd like to understand how these different dynamic states of basal ganglia, if indeed they are states of basal ganglia, uh, what behavioral functions they have, and how they interact with things like incoming cues to modulate ongoing behavior. And we have some interesting preliminary data in that direction. Uh, I'd like to hear that. <laughs> so, so we've shown recently, for example, that uh, beta oscillations in basal ganglia occur following uh, meaningful cues, and that while provoked by cues, they seem to be somewhat more locked to the timing of the resulting movements, but not in a simple way, so that on individual trials where you have early beta oscillations, you have slower movements, and on trials where you move faster, the beta is actually coming late and not happening until after you've already started moving. So, you know, these are states of the circuitry that seem to modulate how rapidly you can respond to a behaviorally salient cue. And we've also observed that whether or not you get a beta oscillation seems to reflect whether you use that cue in order to modify uh, your ongoing behavior. So there's some relationship between beta oscillations and how basal ganglia circuits are making use or employing cues to direct behavior, but something we're still trying to get to the bottom of right now. So if I get a stimulus and I don't generate any beta in my stratum, it means I'm not using it in my decision process. That's right. Yeah. Or if you get it too late, you're not using it in your decision process. So, I mean, one of the things that, again, this is all preliminary, but we'd like to understand is there's been a long-standing mystery since Helmholtz in the 19th century, uh, why reaction times are variable. So if you look at reaction times, and you know, there's some qualifications to this story, but if you ask people to you know, follow in a queue, make a simple movement, what you find is that the simple movements tend to have fairly low variance in how long it takes them to make the movement, relative to the variance in reaction times. Reaction times tend to be surprisingly variable, and we've not understood why. So one thing that's sort of really interesting is to find neural phenomena that might help to explain why on a given trial you moved more quickly or you initiated the movement more quickly or more slowly. Uh, so that's what, that's what we're trying to do right now. Okay, well, thank you very much. This has been Neuroscience's Talk Shop.